I'm Maya Contreras, your host, and this is episode 10 of Obscene. According to Jack Holland, author of A Brief History of Misogyny, the first known public protests, organized entirely by women, took place in 205 BC, after Rome passed the Opian Laws. These laws limited the amount of gold a woman could possess, forbade them from wearing clothing with purple trim, as purple was associated with power and royalty, and banned them from riding in carriages within a mile of Roman country towns, with a few religious exceptions. So to sum up, these laws didn't want women to have too much money, to look like they had too much power, and dictated their travel. When it looked like the women's protests were going to result in the banishment of these laws, Cato the Elder, who was a more articulate Rush Limbaugh of his day, wasn't having it. It was then he went to the Senate floor and delivered this pernicious speech. If every married man had been concerned to ensure that his own wife looked up to him and respected his rightful position as her husband, we should not have half this trouble with women in mass. Instead, women have become so powerful that our independence has been lost in our own homes and now is being trampled and stamped underfoot in public. We have failed to retrain them as individuals and now they have combined to reduce us to our present panic. It made me blush to push my way through positive regiments of women a few minutes ago in order to get here. My respect for the position and modesty of them as individuals, a respect I do not feel for them as a mob, prevented my doing anything as counsel which would suggest the use of force. Otherwise, I should have said to them, What do you mean by rushing out in public in this unprecedented fashion, blocking the streets and shouting out to men who are not your husbands? Could you have not asked your questions at home and asked them of your husbands? Women is a violent and uncontrolled animal, and it is no good giving her the reins and expecting her not to kick over the traces. No, you have to keep the reins firmly in your own hands. Suppose you allow them to acquire or to extort one right after another, and in the end, to achieve complete equality with men. Do you think you'll find them bearable? Nonsense. Once they have achieved equality, they will be your masters. Well, tell us how you really feel, Cato. The essence of Cato's speech, full of fear and want of control, is no doubt the subtext of these abortion bans currently proliferating around the United States. It will take, as Cato feared, a positive regiment of women to dismantle these systemic oppressions. Luckily, with leaders like Sister Song's Jaleesa Jackson, activist, scholar, and reproductive justice advocate, we are well on our way. 
Uh, my name is Jaleesa Jackson. Um, I'm the Georgia coordinator for Sister Song, um, and we're a National Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. And what drew you to your occupation? Um, so before I joined the team at Sister Song, um, a little over a year ago, I was teaching full-time um, at a university about 25 miles north of Atlanta, um, Kennesaw State University. Um, and I was teaching in their interdisciplinary studies department, specifically um, African and African diaspora studies um, and gender and women's studies. Um, and one of the courses I, I taught in gender and women's studies was a love and sex course. Um, and so I had known about reproductive justice as a movement and framework. And so I incorporated those principles and some of the learning objectives for the course. Um, because it's a framework that has always resonated with me um, as a mother and as an educator and as someone who has tried to stay connected to social justice movements, even when I was in academia. Um, but I felt like there was something missing. I felt like um, I enjoy teaching. I still teach um, part-time, um, but I wanted to move the theory to the praxis. So that's what kind of drew me to the work at Sister Song. What were some early obstacles um, that you might have experienced in or around your career? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think um, finding my place was a little difficult at first. Um and then just getting used to the fast pace, act now nature of movement work was also an adjustment for me coming from a, a space where I had time to think these think things through like very thoroughly. Um, and sometimes because of the nature of the work, we kind of have to um, we have to act very quickly on things. Um, and so that was kind of one of the biggest obstacles that um, I had when I first started movement work. And that makes sense. In academia, it's a little bit more kind of can be planned out, but Definitely. you're moving into a new frame. What was, what's one of the number one misunderstandings people have about your job? Um, I think that people aren't, are often unclear about what it is that I do. Um, oftentimes when people say, so what do you do? They expect like one, like a quick answer, like, oh, I right. teach or, oh, I'm a nurse. Um mm-hmm. Or, you, you know, something like that. And so it's hard to describe the multiplicious nature of the work that we do at Sister Song um, right. very cogently. Um, and so I think that's one of the misunderstandings. People often think it's direct service work or they, you know, they're like, oh, it's reproductive rights or reproductive health. And I'm like, it's all of it, right? Like it's it's everything. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think that's one of the largest misunderstandings about the work is that people just are very confused about what it means to work for a reproductive justice organization and what all of that entails. Well, hopefully we'll clear some of that up for some people today. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's clear um, that in your academic work um, that brought you um, to Sister Song that you are an advocate, but do you consider yourself an advocate or an activist um, in all things? And if so, which way, in, in what way? I, I really like to merge the scholar activists together. So mm-hmm. I would describe myself as a scholar activist, um, because of the subject areas that I teach. It's also been, it's always been very deeply aligned with, um, political movements and social movements, mm-hmm. um, that were rooted in human rights and civil rights and, um, liberation. And so, I feel like um, both of those 
things are really core components of my identity. So I don't tease those things out. So I identify as a scholar activist because I bring my academic background and my like very deep knowledge of theory um, to my organizing and movement building work as well. And so Mm -hmm. it's a really, it's a, it's great to be able to marry uh, both of my loves in that way. I love that. And what's one of the issues, I'm sure there's a few, um, that persist in your fields? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think one of the major issues is just, um, or one of the things that we're working towards is mainstreaming reproductive justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people have a very clear understanding about what reproductive rights are and reproductive health are, and they've kind of had the stage for a long time, right? And so we know that reproductive justice was born out of Black women saying, like, these movements are not adequately addressing all of our needs. And so we're creating our own lane um, and creating our own language and framework to better address what our real life needs are, what our material needs are Mm -hmm. um, in a really powerful way. So I think one of the it's like a beautiful thing. And it's also an obstacle because we're always like fighting to have a seat at the table um, to really address the issues that impact the most marginalized people. So you touched on people's misunderstanding a bit about reproductive justice, what it exactly is, because it's it's a expansive mm-hmm. subject, you know. Uh, how, how do you define it? How do you explain it when you discuss it with people? Sure. Um, so at Sister Song, we situate reproductive justice within four components, like four core tenets of the framework. The first is the right to have a child. Seems simple. Great. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, The second is the right to not have a child and the um, options for ending an unwanted pregnancy. Um, The third is the right to parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities with access to necessary social supports that we need and without the threat or the fear of state violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fourth is the right to bodily autonomy. Um, And these core tenets are purposefully very broad Um, Because reproductive justice is an integrative um, framework. It's situated in the human rights framework. Um, It addresses issues of economic justice, of LGBTQ rights, um, of faith, of gender issues, of um, gender identity. Um, All of these things are like you can you can situate all of these things in any of the four tenets of reproductive Mm -hmm. justice. So I think that's why we always push for people to adopt and implement the framework because mm-hmm. it addresses it's true it truly addresses all of our needs to live healthy um to healthy lives and to thrive and not just survive yeah i think that the fact that it's situated in in the um human rights framework to me is incredibly powerful and i think that a lot of people don't know that i mm-hmm. think they think it's just one thing and mm-hmm. it's not um, Sister Song has um, a really wonderful history, and um, I don't—I don't know if it was the founder, but um, I believe you all really coined the term mm-hmm. reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the Sister Song's origins and 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 where you all are at now? I mean, you're a national organization, correct? Correct. Yes, a national organization based in the South, and so. Um, Reproductive justice was coined by our founding mothers, um, mm-hmm. and uh, those were 12 Black women in Chicago who, like I said, during the 90s were recognizing that their concerns um, and their health outcomes and um, access, ability to access health care um, were being 
largely ignored in the reproductive rights movement. Um, the conversations at the time were heavily focused around choice. Um, and we're like, well, before we even get to choice, we need to talk about access. And so right. we created this framework that addressed um, barriers to accessing comprehensive health care, not just reproductive health care, but all the health care that we need to live healthy lives. Um, and so this term was coined in 1994. Sister Song um, was founded in 1997. Um, and so we were initially created to serve like four mini communities. These communities were Black communities, Latinx communities, Indigenous communities, um, I'm missing Asian API communities. Um, mm, yeah. And so we wanted to, 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 for it to truly be an intersectional framework. Um, and at the time it did center um, black women in mm. a very particular way, um, um, given the fact that it was born in the U S and there's a long legacy of racism and sexism um, that has disproportionately impacted black women, but also recognizing that women of color have been impacted by racist and um, sexist policies for a long time now. So we wanted to make sure that the framework was expansive enough to address those needs um, and that we can see each other's lived experiences and um, and each other's. So we could see the experiences of your, of Latinx folks and be like, and say like, Oh, like these are ways in which our experiences overlap. There are ways in which our experiences are different. Um, but we realize that we need to center the most marginalized to truly liberate all of us. And so that's kind of how sister song was born. It's changed over time specifically because early on reproductive justice was very, um, womb centered, Mm. Um, you know, it was founded by cis black women. Right. Um, and so we recognize the need to expand our language to be more inclusive of, um, the folks that we're advocating for. Right. If if we're centering the most marginalized, what does that mean when we talk about the health outcomes of black trans women? Um, are we making sure our language is accessible? Are we making sure that we have a pipeline for them to be leaders in our movement? Um, so that was really important. And also one of the reasons why the fourth tenant, the right to bodily autonomy, bodily autonomy was created um, to be to be more inclusive and affirmative of different ways and people show up in this work and show up in their lives and how they ident- identify. And I want to get into language um, in a moment. But first, I want to get into some of um, the public's perception or misunderstanding. I'm seeing more misunderstandings about some of the abortion bans and bills mm-hmm. that are happening right now. I mean, to me, it's purposely confusing. Absolutely. Um, so what would you want to clear up about just some of the ones that are being proposed this year? We've, we've seen for years that uh, Republicans have been trying to, and some Democrats in the past too, have mm-hmm. been trying to chip away um, at, at, uh, at rights. Um what is what have these abortion bans and bills? What do they mean right now? Um, so, as you said, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the bills. I think um, one of the primary misunderstandings is that it's the exact same bill across the South. And there are nuances that are specific to different states. So while Georgia may have exceptions for rape and incest, Alabama does not. Mm-hmm. And while Georgia... Um, is kind of redefining personhood in a very um, unconstitutional way. Other states that are implementing an abortion ban may not be doing that same thing. Um, And so just understanding that there's nuances and that some of these nuances are state specific. That's one thing. 
The other thing is that um, when the bills go into effect, and I think one of the interesting things is, is that media has played a really interesting role in, Mm -hmm. um, I think, shaping the public's understanding about what's actually happening. And so what we've seen is that there's a number of people who think that um, this law, this um, legislation is law already. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people have changed um, their reproductive health um, decisions based on what they think is available to them or not. And that's what's really frightening. And the media hasn't done a very good job of highlighting Mm -hmm. that um, these bans, specifically in Georgia, this ban does not take into effect until January 2020. So I'm glad you brought up the media's role in this. Um, the last, uh, an episode before this and two before then, I've been talking to um, media experts, both of them women professors, one at Clark University, one at uh, University of Oregon. And, you know, we talked about the fact that the media is predominantly white male mm-hmm. and predominantly run by white males. And also there just seems to be, there just seems to be, um, a lack of interest in getting this type of story right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I have found, I really want to protect the press. I want them to do well, especially in this Mm -hmm. time period, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's frustrating because I see that the public is already felt like everything is illegal, that abortion is, is, is gone, that Roe versus Wade is already dismantled, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, I, so I, um, it's interesting that you, you said that, um, I was going to say as well that um, the way that, uh, that Republicans have made their case about abortion, the way they talk about it, they mm-hmm. act as if like abortion clinics are on every single corner on demand. And we know that can't be further th- from the truth. Mm-hmm. What is the reality when it comes to abortion access now? And how difficult has it already been? Um, well, let's start with that. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you asked that question um, because I think that's part of them kind of trying to shape the public opinion about abortion um, in a really problematic way. Um, I can say that in the state of Georgia, um, 96% of Georgians do not have access to an abortion clinic, Mm. Um, right? Only 4%. That's very small. We're a pretty large state. Um, In addition to that, out of the 159 counties, either 79 or 80 of them do not even have access to OBGYN. So beyond being able to access an abortion clinic, which most uh, most people can't without the help of maybe like an abortion fund, and abortion funds only are able to fund a small percentage of people that reach into them for assistance. Right. Um, people aren't able to access comprehensive reproductive health care, period, in Georgia. Um, additionally, Georgia has failed to expand Medicaid, which creates additional barriers for um, people at the margins, right? So these are Black folks, these are people of color, these are Indigenous folks, these are queer and trans folks. Um, and so that's the reality of what we're, what, with what we're dealing with in the state of Georgia. Um, we have some of the country's worst maternal health outcomes. Um, and so it's really problematic to, um, to give Georgians misinformation about what's actually available to them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, it makes folks distrustful, um, and it's, it scares them, right? It scares these communities. And so I just want to make that clear that most people aren't able to access abortion. Um, and we have one abortion fund in Georgia that supports people that need to access abortions across the entire Southeast. Um, 
And so there's scarcity out there um, for sure. Um, we need more abortion funds, right? We mm-hmm. need more abortion clinics. Um, but at the moment, we just, yeah, we, folks are unable to access on a large scale. And we know this is kind of similar patterns throughout the country Mm -hmm. to that there's just a a lack of access. And of course, we also know that abortion bans and making it illegal does not stop abortion from happening. Mm -hmm. And also those that are wealthy have always had access Mm -hmm. to abortion. So um, anyways, there's a bit of hypocrisy there. Um, So what I would love to know um, right now um, is how do we as a general public, have a better, and I've seen elected representatives struggle to, mm-hmm. to learn the language and the framework of reproductive justice, why it's critically necessary. How do, how do you, how can you, <laughs> with all the work and the time that you don't have to try to help us all understand it better, mm-hmm. but what would you say to someone, because we've seen some people get it wrong. We've seen, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I, I saw online, I, I mean, I don't want to call her out, but it's well known. Uh, she was a meaning, a well-meaning act, um, activist saying, um, you know, no one wants an abortion. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw a presidential candidate. He also said that no one wants an abortion. I said, well, no, some people do want an abortion. Do. <laughs> yeah. And so how do we start helping people to articulate mm-hmm. um, the fact that, um, you know, it's it's not always a struggle for a woman to come up, you know, or whoever is pregnant to come up with this language, right. you know, right. how do we change that? Yeah. So that's part of the culture shift work that we're trying to do at Sister Song. Um, and we do that through a few different, like a few different ways through our Georgia Reproductive Health Rights and Justice Coalition and our Amplified Georgia work, which is an abortion out loud campaign. And what we're trying to do is normalize people talking about abortion. Mm. It seems simple, but it's one of those things like sex that people think that you shouldn't talk about in public. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you normalize conversations like that, people see it as a, as a regular healthcare um, or a medical procedure, which it is. Right. Um, And so that's part of it. The other part of it is identifying who your allies are that are elected representatives um, and leveraging them in that way. Um, And I think Although we didn't see the outcome that we wanted in Georgia, we did a really good job um, at leveraging those relationships that we already had with um, elected representatives. Um, Mm -hmm. And they kind of spoke the language to their colleagues. Um, One other way that we have been thinking through educating the general public, um, during legislative session in Georgia, we um, did trainings for folks who wanted to show up to the Capitol almost every day. Um, And so we had a strong contingency of folks who were um, at the Capitol every single day. We talked to them about reproductive justice. We highlighted the intersectional nature of the framework um, and why it may matter to them. And we encouraged them to make it personal when you go talk to your electeds. Um, Explain why this matters to you from your personal standpoint. Um, And so I think we did a really good job with public education. Um, And we'll continue to do that work um, throughout Um, the month of June and throughout the summer. We already have some things on the calendar to continue this public education so people Mm. can know um, how their electeds have voted. Um, We can educate them on issues that matter to them and so that they they can be advocates for themselves and their communities. Mm, That's great. Mm -hmm. 
So right now, I loved your pin tweet. I looked at it and you said you cannot be a strategic organizer, movement leader without studying, without reading and studying. I will die on this hill. <laughs> um, I love that because I feel similarly that if you are an advocate, if you're an activist, you need to be constantly learning and listening. Mm-hmm. Um, explain more why um, why that is and, and what what brought you to wanting to be a strategic organizer? You touched mm-hmm. on a little bit, but I'd love to know a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So this is part, this is partly, um, I feel this way because of my background. Um, from a very early age, my mom used to make me read books about black history and black mm-hmm. liberation movements and things like that outside of whatever I was doing for school. Um, and she just felt like it was incredibly important for me to have this information. And at the time I thought it was really annoying. Like, why are you giving me extra work to do? But now I'm recognizing the significance of that. Yeah. Um, I think strategy is, can be informed by on the ground work, but I also think it's informed by us studying our opposition, um, studying their history, studying their talking points, their messaging, their audiences. Um, I also think studying uh, movement leaders and folks that came before us because a lot of the time, sometimes or sometimes we're reinventing the wheel. Right. And when we study what they've done and what's worked for them in the past, it can better inform our contempt- like our strategy today. Um, and so I lean very heavily on um, cross-sector organizers that came before me that were Black feminists, that were organizing in labor, that were organizing around LGBTQ issues. And I take that knowledge with me into the work every single day. And so I just feel like it's one of those things that we have to do as continuing education as organizers, because people look to us for direction. Absolutely. Um, so that we're be- better able to advocate for the communities that we're advocating for and, um, in a really effective way, because we don't have time for mistakes in this political moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, like we're human. Of course, we'll make mistakes, but like we want to minimize those. And so we really need to be intentional about our ongoing edu- political education. Um, and so I am a firm believer in that. Um, you know, this is not just something I believe in my workspace. I bring this, I have a six-year-old daughter. I mm. you know, have age-appropriate conversations about race and gender in my home. Um, and I do that with my partner. So it's just, it's part of my politic in general um, well, that I take with me and just in my life. <laughs> well, I love that because um, I love talking to young organizers and, um, you know, they're, they're just kind of starting out and, and I, I can hear them thinking that it's never been done before the way they're going about it. I say, no, I think what you're doing is amazing, but you should look at some of what other people have been doing. There have been mm-hmm. a history of badass mm-hmm. people that have worked very hard in the face of oppression. So, um, I think sometimes, um, Sometimes we do a disservice by not remembering all the great people that really worked very hard. Um, yeah. So, sorry. Okay. No, 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 go ahead. And I think that there's this idea that that I've seen recently. I've seen this um, in the classroom, and I've also just seen this just in um, activist spaces where people have like taken on this like anti-intellectualism mm-hmm. um, and they can conflate reading and studying with higher education. And those things are not necessarily the same thing. I am not a person that believes that everyone needs to go to college. Right. I am a person that believes everyone needs to study and read. Yes. Um, so I think teasing that out is really important um, for people to understand. Like you don't have to go to college, but um, if you're going to be in this work, we need to be informed. 
right. so you can win. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you work in Sister Songs Georgia Division, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I lived in Georgia. I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for a while. I went to school at FSU in Florida. Mm-hmm. My my family on my father's side grew up in Mississippi and lived in Indiana. I feel like they think black people don't live there in the Midwest, but they do. Um, I know firsthand that there are a lot of erasure of black women and women of color in the South, Mm -hmm. especially working in human rights and reproductive rights. Since the abortion bans uh, have been drafted, I've seen a lot of negative negativity towards the South, you know, Mm -hmm. saying we just need to let them secede. Mm -hmm. You know, what would you want someone to know who says something like that? That's an interesting question. Um, So I live in Georgia. (laughs) Um, And I actually, I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up in Vermont. And people think, you know, well, Black people actually don't really live there. But but there's oftentimes this idea about the South and like a backwards nature of the South. Um, And it's also interesting because the South is kind of the home of all of the civil rights movement that we've seen um, over the last 100 years. Right. Um, specifically, um, when we think of um, Black liberation work and things like that. And so it's always interesting to hear like the South should secede um, when we are kind of on the ground, eyes on the ground, and we're the ones that are taking to the streets every day and engaging our communities. And so I think instead of people having that sort of assessment, thinking about ways in which they can support the work that's happening in the South, because once the South moves, then the rest of the country moves. I also want to highlight that this is not just a Southern issue. It's a nationwide issue. Um, we have an issue. Um, we have issues around race and gender and class um, and sexual orientation in this country. I um, mean, these bands are just ways in which um, marginalized populations can be stripped of their rights. Um, we see attack on trans rights all the time. We see it, uh, rollbacks on healthcare all the time. We, see, you know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like this is not just a southern issue. This is just one. This is just one part of a larger um, white supremacist um, strategy nationwide. Absolutely. I live in New York City in Manhattan, and um, I. You can see the racism here too. Right. You just like you can right. see the problematic aspects that we have mm-hmm. here. You see mm-hmm. the gentrification here. Mm-hmm. So you know. So I, I would like the country to look at that aspect as more of a whole of how we're dealing with systemic issues. Right. Um, and because you live in Georgia right now, it's become a very vibrant mm-hmm. film and television industry. Mm-hmm. And um, because of some of these restrictive bills, some. Um, some well-meaning, I feel, directors and, and um, producers have said, you know, we're boycotting, we're pulling out. Mm-hmm. I remember that Stacey Abrams originally said, please don't do that mm-hmm. um, because it hurts people who, who live and work here. And then some filmmakers like Jordan Peele have opted to donate some of mm-hmm. his his fees to um, donate his fee to, um, to fight the abortion bans. Um, is there a wrong way to go about this? I mean, does it all work or does one work better than the other to help Uh, reproductive justice groups and advocates. Yeah. I think applying pressure to the electeds in this state is really important for people in positions of power to do. Um, So certainly leverage that power. Um, I think um, well-meaning directors and folks like that should engage with groups on the ground to talk through what's best for 
Georgians, um, specifically because the film industry provides a lot of work for people here. Um, and so when we talk about, or when it's threatened that they'll w- pull their work out of Georgia, that means that more Georgians will be facing um, joblessness. Right. Um, and in the city of Atlanta, we're the number one city for income inequality. So we have to think about what that looks like and who will be disproportionately impacted by decisions such as that. Um, and so I really just want folks to engage with groups, grassroots organizations that are working in community with folks here on the ground before um, making large decisions like that. Yeah. I just feel like the first step should always be asking, what do you all need? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, instead of I've come in, I've got the solutions. This is what we're doing. It's like, ah, okay. Just right. ignore, ignore all of us. Right. Um, so something that I talk about a lot, a lot all the time is about is voter suppression. Mm-hmm. And um, what worries me is that some of these abortion bans are designed to criminalize people or to criminalize doctors, to mm-hmm. criminalize women who, you know, might do their own procedure with, I'm not going to say it right when um, they take a pill to, mm-hmm. you know, early stages. Mm-hmm. And so I, I read that a woman could be criminalized for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see that this could all continue to keep um, black women, uh, people of color off the voting rolls. Right. So, you know, C.C. Abrams has been critical in discussing voter suppression. Do you see voter suppression becoming a component? I know this sounds a little strange of reproductive justice, given the criminalization of abortion and maybe jail time and then losing voting rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think um, one of the human rights is like the right to um, self-determination. And when you can't put elected officials in, if you can't use your right to vote, to put elected officials that will um, work for your better outcome, then um, that's definitely a reproductive justice issue. And so um, I think it, it's, it's multi-pronged. Um, one thing I'm thinking about is this criminalization aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, women of color are the largest growing prison population worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thinking about ways in which we're seeing this sort of rollback of a lot of human rights and civil rights gains that we've seen over the last um, 50 to 100 years. Um, I'm thinking about the, our ever-growing prison population. Mm-hmm. And so when you criminalize, when you make abortion criminal, that means that people who, because people will continue to have self-managed abortions, right? Um, right. They don't want to be pregnant. They don't want to be parents. And they have a right to make that decision. This is a, a way to continue to grow uh, mass incarceration. Right. Um, or it's a death sentence for people, right? So if Black mm-hmm. women are three to four times more likely to die, you either risk criminalization or you risk death by continuing to have carrying your pregnancy to term. So like you're really in a really um, you're in a no, a lose, lose situation if those are your options and we right. think people need to have options and the way in which we can make sure that people have options is by electing people that um, will work towards that. And so absolutely voter suppression is a reproductive justice issue. Speaking of elections, we have 2020 coming up soon. Um, it, there's going to be, it's not just about the presidential election, right? You know, we're going to have to concentrate on Senate because the Senate's the one that appoints judges. Mm-hmm. It, it's a big thing. We, we need obviously state houses mm-hmm. are critical for the work that they do. Governors who are mm-hmm. signing these bills into law or not. So it's not just 
the presidents that I'm thinking about. But Mm -hmm. have you started to see um, these presidential candidates um, proposing policies or starting to have fruitful discussions Mm -hmm. about reproductive justice and communities of color? Or um, do you, I'm not asking for you to to endorse anybody, but Mm -hmm. have you seen anybody talk um, who is, who's the closest to kind of getting it right on this subject? Oh, goodness. Um, (laughs) I think we're very far from getting it right. Okay. Um, Also, we're very early on in the the game, and there's so many um, candidates at the moment. Yeah. I've just been kind of really focusing my efforts on um, state level and local level um, Mm -hmm. organizing and making sure that we have elected officials at the state level that will protect um, our human rights. And so that's kind of where we see people falling off as it relates to their engagement. People tend to be incredibly engaged in the presidential elections. Um, Right. They're less engaged at the state level. And we're seeing the, um, I mean, we're seeing the ramifications of voter suppression in Georgia, to be clear. Um, but we're also seeing the ramifications of that kind of that slight drop off of engagement in midterm elections. And so we really want to focus our efforts locally because there are ways in which the state can um, maintain protections when the federal government does not. And I want always people to understand that. I, the last episode we talked about, we talked about those 500,000 seats that you can vote for in the United States and every single one of them plays an important role. And I, I am not a fan of the fact that every four years we're like, Oh, let's pick this one person. Right. <laughs> Just like, no, there's so many other seats. Right. But what would you like to see out of some policy that would be coming out from a federal level? Like just some basic touchstone um, ideas and policy that would make you feel like, okay, this person is on the right track. Yeah, um, it would have to be policy that went beyond um, reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. It would have to be um, a federal mandatory living wage. Love that, <laughs> yes. you like to call it. Uh, and I'm dreaming a little bit, right? Um, it would have to be a reproductive justice living wage, which is more than the $15 an hour that has been proposed. Um, oh, I, I always think that's ridiculous. That's not a living wage. Right. In, in yeah. Georgia... Um, People, our state minimum wage is five $5.15 an hour. Um, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, and it's it's with the heavy gentrification that's happening in Atlanta right now, people, I don't even know how people are maintaining. They're incredibly resilient, but people shouldn't have to be resilient in that way. So it would be at the intersection of protecting rights of LGBTQ plus folks. It would be having a reproductive justice living wage. It would be, it would protect... Um, we wouldn't see these religious refusals at the federal level where right. um, jobs can um, discriminate on people based on their supposed religious beliefs. They wouldn't be able to weaponize their religion in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be multi-pronged. It would be a number of different things because there's so many issues, um, but it would be intersectional in nature where it would address all of these aspects of people's lives that impact their material realities. Okay, so I will tell you that out of all the policies that I've read, I have not seen that approach yet. So I just want you to know. Okay. <laughs> just, just my two cents there. Right. Um, something that 
I have been worried. I'm sure everybody else is worried about it too. I was thinking about plan B the other day, Mm -hmm. you know, like I've taken plan B, right? Mm -hmm. I went to college. I took plan B. Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking about, well, you know, I had access to that, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I was just thinking how Trump and his administration, uh, nothing satiates them. There's Mm -hmm. never a good enough it's a continuation of, of, of taking rights away. So I think a lot of people see that Roe versus, they think Roe versus Wade is the end point for them. Mm-hmm. But do you see that is even an end point for what the Republicans are trying to do? Absolutely not. Okay. Yeah. I see the criminalization of Plan B. There's already been language out there that calls Plan B like um, an abortion pill or like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like it induces abortion. So like they're already working on that language. Um, I've seen, we already see how inaccessible um, birth control is. Um, And the fact that um, RIFRA allows um, folks to deny um, coverage for that based on religious beliefs. Um, And so I, I see, I foresee the criminalization of Plan B. I foresee the criminalization of birth control, um, if we don't act. So I don't want to be like totally no. pessimistic. I just think I really want to emphasize the importance of people acting right now. We so speaking of which, yeah. I want you to tell us what, if you had your druthers, if you could tell us in, and get everybody to, to snap into place, mm-hmm. what are a few action points you, you'd want us to take? Mm-hmm. So it would be first um, with educating people on your sphere of influence. We need more people and we need more people to understand reproductive justice as the integrative framework that it is. People need to see themselves in the framework. Like they need to know why they should care about it. Right. And so my first thing would be to bring more people in, which we've been able to do um, through our Georgia Reproductive Health Rights and Justice Coalition. There are, have been new folks, um, community members that have just been activated. And so we're thinking through a plan of keeping them engaged Um so it would be it would be political education for our community. It would be educating them on how their electeds um, voted, um, whether they voted in their best interests or not. It would be um, increasing funding support for Black um, POC-led, queer and trans-led organizations that only get a very small sliver of funding right. for this work. And we're the ones that are leading this work, and we're severely underfunded. Um, right. So those are the, some of the immediate next steps. And I feel like sometimes people like people think that um, there's no amount that's too little to contribute to an organization. Um, I think spreading the word is really important. But I think at this political moment, we need to do more than just like tweeting and Facebook about it. Um, and we all have lives and that's and that's real. And I want to lift that up as well. But any way that people can get plugged in, I want to encourage them. If you have to email me, reach into me to figure out how to get plugged in, I encourage that. Um, but we just want people to be active and to really take this moment seriously because our lives um, depends on it. Well, I'll tell them to follow you on Twitter as a first step. So you want me to t- so tell us what your Twitter handle is. Sure. It's at uh, Jalisa J. So it's J-A-L-E-S-S-A-H-J. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Maya Contreras, and this is Obscene.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.